Taking the Mantle is the name of the message. Um, this will not be a light Bible study. I think most of you who are used to uh, the teaching style here know that uh, we're just going to go through the text as it is. And 2 Kings is a uh, interesting, strong chapter. And it uh, has to do with the transference of a mantle from Elijah the prophet to Elisha the prophet. It's about handing off ministry. It's about entrusting ministry to the next generation. It's about God's faithfulness in every era where he proves himself to be faithful. And the book is 2 Kings. The very first verse we're going to read, which sets up the rest of it. Why don't you just stand to your feet, if you would, if you're able, for the very first verse. It reads this way. And it came about when the Lord was about to take up Elijah by a whirlwind to heaven, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. You can stay standing. Father, thank you so much for your living word. As we look at the catching up of Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind, and the chariots of fire, and the horses of fire, and the message that you are sending, Lord. And we know there's a heaven, first of all. We want to take a moment just to muse on that. There is a heaven. It's your Father's house, Jesus, you said. You said there's many places there. You said you would prepare a place for your own. And we know you've done just that. And we take great refuge in the fact that there's a heaven. And that you have guaranteed that place. And that Elijah is one of two men that we know of in Scripture that doesn't taste physical death. He, he gets translated to heaven. Taken up. A picture of the rapture. There's so much more in this chapter that we have to learn, Lord. And we want to lay the time at your feet, both in the teaching of your word, may you be glorified. And in the response of your saints, your church, that you bought with your blood. May you be pleased in the, in the way we respond to it. Give us ears to hear what you would say to us in this moment. In Jesus' name we pray, all God's people said, amen. amen. You can have a seat. Taking the mantle. This is a, a leadership text, but there's much more to it. And with the familiar words, and it came about when the Lord was about to take up Elijah by a whirlwind to heaven, sets the stage for uh, some of the crescendos of the chapter. But there's a lot here. And Elijah uh, goes with Elisha from a place called Gilgal. Now, I don't have a map for you today, but these locations are very familiar. They, they are locations that were really kind of the key points in entering into the promised land as the people of Israel crossed over the Jordan River and began to take the promises of God. And so it came about when the Lord was about to take up Elijah, so it hadn't happened yet, but this would be Elijah's last day on earth. And it's an interesting concept to think about. You have a last day. Each of us will have a last day. Uh, even if the Lord returns in rapture, that will be our last day in our lifetime if we experience that. And here's something that we could say about Elijah. He finished well. 
he ran the race with endurance. Now, he had his moments of weakness. He had the famous battle on Mount Carmel where the Lord answered by fire, a great victory. But then you all know that he ran away kind of scared from Jezebel and had a death threat on his life. And in 1 Kings chapter 19 where the initial meeting of Elijah and Elisha occur. If you're new to these books, uh, something you need to know is that First and Second Kings was originally one book in the Hebrew Bible. First Kings 19 is where Elijah and Elisha first meet. And basically, Elisha gets his call, and Elijah places his mantle on him. You may ask, what is a mantle? I've heard that before. What are we talking about? A mantle is something like a robe. It could be a prayer shawl. In our modern uh, vernacular, if you look up the word, it has an additional meaning. Taking a mantle means to take a position of authority, to succeed someone else. For example, you might take the mantle of leadership in a company, in a family, in a church, etc., so there's a, an additional meeting here, but they first meet in 1 Kings 19, and the commitment is made by Elisha to follow his master, and that's indeed what happens. Elijah is a good contrast to a king that we studied last week named Ahaziah. And you may recall, if you were with us, that Ahaziah was on his upper chamber in his palace, and he leaned on the lattice, and the lattice gave way, and he fell, literally fell, had mortal Uh, probably internal injuries. And when he was on his deathbed, and on your deathbed, you want to make sure that you've got everything resolved. Amen? You want to make sure that you've believed the right things and lived the right way and trusted in a God that can actually deliver. Ahaziah, what did he do on his deathbed? He called out to the God of Ekron with a small g, the God Baal, the false God, who was a thorn in Israel's side for many, many centuries. And he, he, his message by his messengers was intercepted by none other than Elijah. And Elijah said, you're not getting up from your deathbed. You will, remember the words, you will surely die. And because he had gone to a false god, he died. He did not get up from that deathbed. And he's a good contrast with Elijah. Ahaziah went down. Elijah went up. And the Bible says there's really only two directions you can go when you die. You're either going to go up to be with the Lord or you're going down. And you want to make sure that you have that right on that day. Now we're introduced to this idea of prophets in this chapter. And yesterday I watched a little television and I turned on an uh, older sermon from Charles Stanley. Probably from a few decades ago. And Charles Stanley was preaching from Luke chapter 16. That's where Jesus tells the story of two men that die and gives us a view into the afterlife. The one man's a rich man. His name's not given. The poor man is named Lazarus. You remember the story? Lazarus uh, used to lay at the gate of the rich man just hoping to get kind of a doggy bag of leftovers. And the rich man feasted, you know, sumptuously every day, had everything at his beck and call. And both men die. The rich man ends up in Hades, and he's in some sort of agony or torment, and Lazarus is in a place called Abraham's bosom at his side in paradise. And there's an interchange between the two, and basically the rich man in agony says, can you send Lazarus, I can see him, over to me and let him dip his finger in some cool water and and cool off my tongue. 
We don't know that, that this is a literal agony and flame, but he says, I'm in agony in this flame. And basically the response from Abraham in the afterlife, Jesus telling the story is, we can't cross over from here to you, and you can't cross over from where you are to us. And Charles Stanley made this point, and I think it's one we need to consider. He said, positions are fixed in the afterlife. They ain't crossing over, and we ain't crossing over. We're not going to lose our place in paradise, and they're not coming from a place of torment into paradise. Things are fixed. There's no bridge. There's a great chasm. It's over. And these are the words of Jesus. And he says, the, the rich man says, well, then please send Lazarus to my home. I have five brothers, and I don't want them to come into this place of torment. And the response you remember is they, your brothers who are alive still and probably living a similar life to the rich man, your brothers have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they'll believe. And Jesus telling the story says, even if one rises from the dead, some people won't believe. They are to listen to Moses and the prophets. This is a way that kind of sums up, if you will, the Old Testament. The law of Moses, the prophets, and of course we could consider the Psalms as well. Before us is Elijah's ascension into heaven. There are some phenomenal, miraculous events here. And some people look at 2 Kings chapter 2 and the events that unfold. And they're like, oh, this is crazy. Well, God is a God of miracles. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything that you see, God spoke into existence by his incredible power. If you believe Genesis 1-1, you'll have no problem with 2 Kings chapter 2. Here's another truth. The gospel itself that we proclaim is miraculous. It includes the death of Messiah for us, his triumphant resurrection from the dead, and we could even consider his ascension back into heaven, which is really kind of a picture here as Elijah goes up to heaven. So this is the word of God, and it will record the ascension or the catching away of Elijah and many other things. He ran well. This is what Paul says at the end of his life. I have fought the good fight, 2 Timothy 4, 7, and 8. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is verse 16, 2 Timothy 4, Paul's last chapter he writes. At my first defense, no one supported me. All deserted me, may it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me in order that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished, and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. So Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. Now they start at a place called Gilgal, and now we have the mention of Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, this is vow kind of language, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Then the sons of the prophets, this is something like a school of prophets. I'll show you a couple of verses in a second. 
back in the day who were at Bethel. So there was some sort of school of prophets at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, now we'll park there for a second. So Elijah and Elisha are walking together. They leave a place called Gilgal. Gilgal literally means to roll away. It, it, it points to a circle of stones in the original word, but it means to roll away, like rolling away the past. And as Israel's getting ready to go into the promised land, God promised to roll away the past from them, to leave the past behind. And that's a beautiful thing for all of us in thinking about our new life in Christ. Amen. We have been able to leave the past behind. All our past sins, all our transgressions, we can leave behind. We start a new journey in Christ. They move from Gilgal to a place called Bethel. Bethel was famous for a couple of things, but one in particular is a scene in Genesis 28. Jacob has a dream there. He dreamt about, and we call it Jacob's ladder. Remember? Genesis 28. Angels were ascending and descending on this ladder, and the Lord was above the ladder in the heavens, if you will. And he reiterated the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and now to Jacob, that he would increase the number as the stars of the sky, etc., and Jacob famously said, this place is Bethel. It's the house of God. God is here and I didn't know it or I didn't realize it. And this place of Bethel literally means house of God. If you think of the female name Beth and you add E-L on the end, this is the way Hebrew words. Bait is the word Beth. It's house and El is the name for God. Bethel means house of God. And so that's what Jacob called the place. Later in Genesis 35, he renews his commitment to God at Bethel. And Bethel reminds us that God is in our lives, that we need to be intimate with God. We need to realize God is in this place, amen? He lives inside of you and inside of me. He's always with us. He will never leave us, nor will he ever forsake us. And I believe that the journey points as they, these two walk together are important for spiritual application. And so... From Gilgal, they move to this place called Bethel, and there's some prophets there. And we ask, well, who are these guys? What is going on here at this place? And they come out to Elisha, verse 3, end of the verse, and said to him, do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he said, yes, I know, be still. Now, other versions say, please be quiet. It has the idea of, I don't want to talk about it. You can imagine this was a hard day for Elisha. I'm sure they had a relationship for some years. They had built a master, kind of a disciple, a Lord disciple relationship. John the Baptist had disciples. Jesus, of course, was called master by his disciples. He's the ultimate Lord. But apparently, Elijah and Elisha had this relationship, and they called Elijah his master. He was over him, if you will. And there were some prophets there that Elijah went to visit. I think what's happening here is Elijah's saying goodbye to various schools of prophets that he probably was ultimately over. We might think of a Bible college or a church discipleship you know, ministry or something like that to get our arms around what's happening here. Take a look. First Samuel is just, First uh, and Second Samuel are the books right before First and Second Kings. Let's go to First Samuel 19. Let me show you uh, what's going on here just so you can get a feel for this. There were prophets in, back in the day. These prophets mentioned here are part of the 7,000 that had not uh, kneel, bent their knee to Baal, but they were true to God. 1 Samuel 19, 19. 
It may be Samuel who started this whole idea of a school of prophets. It says these words, and I want to thank my brother Tom who pointed out these verses to me. It was told Saul, saying, for Samuel 19, 19, Behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul, 1 Samuel 19, 20, sent messengers to take David. But when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, with Samuel standing and what? Presiding over them. The Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. Now, if you go back to chapter 10 of the same book, 1 Samuel chapter 10, it seems like there was some sort of school of, of the prophets in strategic locations in 1 Samuel 10, as um, Samuel is going to anoint Saul as the king, he's going to take the mantle of leadership over Israel. It says these words. This is verse 5, 1 Samuel 10. Middle of the verse, he describes what's going to happen. A group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, and they will be prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord, verse 6, will come upon you mightily, Samuel says to Saul. And you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. Skip down to verse 9. Then it happened when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God changed that Saul's heart. And all those signs came about on that day. And when they came to the hill there, behold, a group of prophets met him. That's the new king. And the Spirit of God came upon him mightily so that he prophesied among them. So in strategic locations, back to 2 Kings chapter 2, these schools of prophets were there. And Bethel, sadly, the place called the house of God, had now become a center of idol worship. This is a place where the king, I believe it's Jeroboam, sent up, set up one of the golden calves, one of two golden calves, and he instituted Baal worship in Bethel. How sad that places that were once significant for high spiritual moments in biblical history had been given over to idol worship, namely to a golden calf. Hadn't Israel learned their lesson in Exodus 32 about the golden calf and God's judgment coming down? But this is what happened. Here we are in America. America was founded on biblical values and principles. In fact, when you read the founders, the founders of the country created a constitutional republic based on Judeo-Christian uh, uh, Judeo-biblical principles and said these words. This kind of government can only work with a people governed by the Bible. That is the country in which we live. And sadly, we have moved away largely from biblical principles. But there's hope. Let me tell you why. I was reading a commentary on 2 Kings from J. Vernon McGee, probably written in the 70s. He goes down a, a list of things that he bemoans about the culture. They're all the same things we're dealing with 50 years later. There's nothing new under the sun. Now, there's some new twists on some crazy stuff. No doubt about that. But here's the point. Man gravitates to idol worship and all that goes with it when he forsakes the living God. And these schools of prophets set up uh, in strategic locations like Bethel were meant to counter the culture. I was talking to a friend recently and he said, we should set up churches at the gates of hell. Now I know that many of you believe that Tennessee is the new Jerusalem 
And I understand why people are flooding out of California. However, let me ask you a question. Where should we be setting up churches? Where do we need a prophetic voice in our day? Right here. I'm not going to call California the gates of hell. <laughs> Yet. <laughs> See, this is where we need the scriptures ringing forth from pulpits across this nation. Not blowing with the cultural winds, brothers and sisters. Now, we need, need to do it winsomely and in love. We were all once lost. And so the school of prophets, I think Elijah's saying a final farewell, and he, he visits this one at Bethel. This is first three, second Kings 2. And I think maybe he went in, and Elisha was waiting outside, and, and the, the prophets come out in the school and say to Elisha, do you know that your master's gone today? The one that's you know, been so instrumental in your life, the one that has shaped you, he's going away today. When Jesus was ready, ready to go back to his father and he began to introduce the reality of his death to the apostles, they were pretty brokenhearted. And he said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many mansions, many dwelling places. If it weren't true, if there wasn't a heaven, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. Amen. And Thomas you know, spoke, I think, for all of them. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus famously said, you remember it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one's coming to the Father except through me. He makes the way. But this had to be tough news for someone like Elisha. Paul wrote to Timothy before he went to be with his Lord. He said, you therefore, my son, 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 3, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men. Think of the school of the prophets who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So I'm sure the emotions ran high. The students came out and said, your master's gone today. Elijah will challenge his uh, mentor or the mentoree, if you will, the one who's going to take the mantle a second time. Elijah said to him, to Elisha, verse 4, please stay here for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, Elisha responded, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. Why does Elijah keep doing this? I think maybe as a final test to see if Elisha's in it for the long haul, if he really wants to count the cost. And so he follows him to Jericho. And Jericho is very famous in biblical history. Jericho is the place that they had to first conquer when they crossed the Jordan into the promised land. And the walls were huge. And how did those walls come down in Jericho? They circled them seven times on that last day, right? And the walls fell down. And Hebrews 11.30 says that the walls of Jericho fell down by faith. Amen? And this is a picture of the walk of faith. Gilgal, your sins are rolled away. You're past Bethel. You learn to know the presence of God, that he's with you. And now Jericho, we walk by faith and not by sight. Strategic locations, but also where these schools were where the influence of the word of God was taking root and the sons of the prophets 
were also there at Jericho, verse 5. And they approached Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he answered, Yes, I know. Be still. Psalm 46.10, Be still and know. I'm God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And other versions say, keep quiet, don't speak of it, silent. <laughs> I don't think Elisha wanted to talk about it. I think there was, this was a tough day for him. Now Jericho was the first place conquered by Joshua and the group you all know. The Lord said, cursed before the Lord is the man who rises up and builds the city of Jericho. And of course, Ahab was the one that rebuilt it. It was under a curse of God, or at least that man was. And Elijah said to him, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me now to the final place here in our little journey to the Jordan. That's the Jordan River. And he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on, the NIV puts it. Now 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood opposite them at a distance while the two of them st stood by the Jordan. The Jordan is, has great significance. The Jordan River was the river that needed to be crossed to go into the promised land. And it was that flood stage when they had to cross it. And the priests were called to carry the ark in front of the people of Israel. And when they took the step into the Jordan, God said, you step in, I'll part it. But I'm not parting it until you step in. And if you had the front position on the ark that day, you were kind of bummed out. Are you sure? Didn't I do the dishes last night? That kind of thing. And when they stepped in, it was literally a step over their head. If God doesn't part the river, they're going down with the ark as well. But the ark represents the presence of God. And they stepped in and God parted the Jordan and even stopped the waters at distance away, congealed them, if you will, at a distance as the whole multitude crossed the Jordan River. It's the walk of faith, but it's also a place where later in biblical history, a very famous event takes place. It is there at the Jordan River where John the Baptist who came in the spirit and power of Elijah, Luke 1, 16 and 17, baptized our Lord. And what he did was he handed off the mantle to Jesus. Elijah, you know, he comes in the spirit and power of Elijah and hands it off to the new Elisha. Jesus, the greater Elisha, of course. Do you know Elisha's name means the Lord is salvation, just exactly what Jesus' name means. And there at the Jordan, the heavens opened and the Spirit of God came down upon Jesus and lighted upon him and he began his public ministry and John says, now you follow him. Jesus took the mantle. The Jordan is a place that pictures death to the old self, resurrection to newness of life, just like baptism points to, and a beginning of a new ministry, taking the mantle, if you will. Great significance in these places. Now, I think at least three schools of prophets that they visit saying goodbye, maybe a final encouragement, keep the faith, I'm going to be with the Lord, but you guys keep doing what you've been called to do. And Elijah took his mantle, verse 8, folded it, which may indicate that it was something more like a shawl. He folded it together. He struck the waters. That's the waters of the Jordan. And they were divided here and there. And in Exodus language, the two of them crossed over on dry ground. Now, Elijah's mantle is a Hebrew word which speaks of a cloak or a shawl, but it also has the idea of glory, a glory cloak. I guess the closest we could get to is Joseph's coat of many colors. Amen? 
something like that. But th- it wasn't the cloak itself that had power resident in it. It's not like whoever puts on the jacket has the power. That's not it. The cloak was something like Moses' staff. The staff didn't have the power. It was the power of God through the item, if you will. And so this mantle was now going to be passed on. So it came about, look at verse 9, as we see the new Moses, if you will, and the new Joshua walking together. Moses handed leadership to Joshua, who led the people across the Jordan. You can see the types and shadows here. It came about when they had crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, ask what, you sh- what I shall do for you before I'm taken from you. And Elisha said, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. Now, everybody knew what was happening. Elisha knew what was happening. Last opportunity to soak in these moments, learn whatever last lessons you could learn. And now Elijah says, what can I do for you? I'm leaving. What would you ask of me? Remember when Solomon was asked by God, God gave him a blank check. What do you want? Solomon asked for wisdom. And God said, because you didn't ask for wealth or power, I will give you that too. Solomon asked for wisdom to lead God's people. How we need that, amen? Amen. To lead in whatever capacity we are in today. But here, Elisha asked for a double portion of Elijah's, I think, prophetic ministry and power. I don't know how to quite... Uh, you know, put it all together. But I will tell you this. Scholars point out that the language of the double portion refers to the two shares that the firstborn inherited in a family, Deuteronomy 21, 17. And so it's prophetic gifting or power, and he wanted a double dose of it. I will tell you, the Lord Jesus said, you have not, or James put it this way, you have not because you ask not. Amen. And you don't get what you ask for because you want to spend it on your own pleasures. But Jesus said, whoever asks for the Holy Spirit, our Father, the Father will give the Spirit to that person. And there's verses that say without measure in John chapter 1. How many of you would like a double portion of power in your life? How many of you? Yeah, triple, amen. I'll take all that God wants to give me. Because I need it desperately. I know who I am and I know how weak I can be. So I would encourage you, maybe this week you ask the Lord for a double portion, but not to build your own kingdom, to build his. Amen? To preach the gospel, to be effective. Maybe those who are doing vacation Bible school should be praying this week for a double portion of patience. Amen? (laughs) Oh, wait a minute. You're not supposed to pray for patience. I don't know. Figure it out. Anyway... So Elijah said, you have asked a hard thing, verse 10. Nevertheless, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. If you see me taken up, you're going to get your request. And then it came about as they were going along and talking that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire. You can cross-reference chapter 6, verse 17, which separated the two of them and Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. Now, the horses and chariots of fire are interesting. It does say specifically that he went up in the whirlwind, but the chariots of fire and the horses of fire are there. 
Some of the prophets stood at a distance and did something like this. The plane! The plane! Some of you remember that TV show. Never mind. Strike that from the record. (laughs) My wife says you can't strike that from the record. So anyway. So get this. Someone, uh, Patrick, pointed out to me in his archaeology study Bible, this text note. Chariots of fire, horses of fire. In biblical tradition, chariots and fire are closely associated with God's self-disclosure. Both images come together in the most common form of divine appearing or theophany in the Old Testament. The thunderstorm, as the storm cloud represents the divine chariot or throne, and fiery lightning bolts represent divine weapons. In Canaanite religious texts from Ugarit, the storm god Baal rides in a chariot of clouds armed with weapons of thunder and lightning. Given the prevalence of Baal worship in Israel at this time, God's manifestation as a fiery charioteer coming in storm or whirlwind is particularly appropriate as it directly challenges Baal's claim to be the God of the storm. God's always working on multiple levels, and there's some divine sarcasm or irony here. You think Baal's the God who rides the chariots of fire? You got it wrong. There's only one God that does that. Amen? The true and the living God. And so, all of a sudden, Elijah is taken up in a whirlwind to heaven Elijah's departure reminds readers of Scripture, says one author, of other unusual events. For example, his going skyward in a whirlwind reads much like Job 38.1, where God answers Job out of a similar storm or whirlwind. Here the picture seems to be the Lord coming down to bring Elijah up. If it, if it intersects with the, the Job 38.1 verse, it's this idea that God comes down to pick up his faithful servant. And it reminds us of the rapture where the Bible says that when the Lord descends from heaven, we will meet the Lord in the air. Amen? First Thessalonians 4, I think it's verse 17. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. One day we're going up and the Lord's going to pick us up. And whether it's a fiery chariot and horses or a plane or whatever, whatever it looks like, an angelic ex- escort, It makes little difference because the whole desire of the believer is to be with the Lord. Amen? Where he is, there's where we want to be. That's what makes heaven, heaven. By the way, Elijah, one of two men that don't taste a physical death, the other Enoch, Genesis chapter 5, Enoch walked with God. He was not, for God took him. And then Elijah goes up in this whirlwind And Elijah appears again on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah, Matthew 17, talking with Jesus before his exit or departure. In Malachi 4, 5, and 6, it says, Elijah, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord, Malachi 4, 5, and 6. And there are many who believe that in Revelation 11, that Elijah is one of the two witnesses in the end time scenario. Very interesting. And that he dies there perhaps because he hadn't tasted physical death. That's uh, another sermon. And so this incredible happening occurs, and Elisha saw it, which guaranteed his 
ask. And he cried out, my father, my father. This is a spiritual relationship. The chariots of Israel and its horsemen and saw him no more. And then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces because his heart was broken. Uh, This expression in Jewish culture is your clothes kind of depict how you're feeling. And he tore his clothes as if to say, you know, I'm going to miss you. I'm brokenhearted that you're going away. That that precious relationship had come to a close at least this side of heaven. And so Elisha calls uh, them the chariots of Israel. Look at verse 12. And it's horsemen. What does this mean? It may speak of the fact that the prophets were the power of Israel because the power of Yahweh is in them. One writer puts it this way. This probably means that Elijah's prophetic powers and spiritual depth are the nation's true strength. The chariot was an instrument of military might. And the author is essentially saying Elijah is the army of God, the true defense of Israel, because God is with him. And and it closes with this thought from another author. This one, one man was the equivalent of a whole army. And I don't know what you believe about the power of God in your life today, but one person through whom the power of God pulses can make a huge difference in this world. Amen? What made Israel Israel was that God had chosen the nation through them to speak to the world and to be a light to the nations and to set apart prophets and and kings to move through them and speak through them and ultimately bring forth the ultimate king. And we should not downplay the power of God's people and God's spokesmen in a culture. It makes a huge difference. And would to God that we would renew that belief and passion. Good time for an amen. Thank you. And so he took up the mantle of Elijah that fell from him. It's often depicted as falling as he's going up. I don't know for sure. And he returned and stood by the bank of the Jordan. He had crossed over the Jordan, so in order to get back into the promised land, as I understand the geography, he needed a miracle. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him, struck the waters, middle of 14, and said, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? God, are you still here? Are you going to work through me? And when he also struck the waters, they were divided here and there, and Elisha crossed over. The answer is clear. Elijah's gone, but God hasn't gone anywhere. Amen? I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And so the prophetic mantle passes from one generation to another. And should the Lord tarry, that's what's going to happen in our day. There are pastors that I read from Years ago, decades ago, centuries ago, ago, they're no longer here. The baton has been passed. The mantle has been passed. And the church's responsibility, please hear me, is to make disciples of all the nations. Not to make people just feel as comfortable as we can in our assemblies and to go light and fluffy. We don't need that. What we need is depth. We need to know God and to know his power. So a miracle occurs. The successor takes the mantle. 
Now, when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho opposite saw him, implication saw what he did, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him, which indicates that he's taken Elijah's place as probably the chief of the prophets or something of that nature. Here is the new Joshua crossing the Jordan, taking the baton from the new Moses. And they said to him, behold, now there are with your servants 50 strong men. Please let them go and search for your master. Perhaps the spirit of the Lord has taken him up and cast him on some mountain or into some valley. And he said, you shall not sin. Now the prophets come up to him and they say, should we go look for Elijah? Where is the dude? Is he up on some high snowy mountain? We need to go get him. Is he in a valley somewhere? And Elijah's like, no, don't go look for him. Where did he go? He went to heaven. He's with the Lord. And I'm sure he doesn't want to come back at this point, right? And they go looking because they urged him until he was ashamed, 17. And he said, send, go. And they sent, therefore, 50 men. And they searched three days but did not find him. And they returned to him while he was staying at Jericho. And he said to them, did I not say to you, don't go? How many of you parents want to mark that verse? (laughs) Didn't I tell you? Some of you can remember days when your parents warned you against smoking. Oh, you want to smoke? Okay, well, let's light one up right now. And you took a couple puffs. (laughs) And then to top it off, they washed your tongue with soap to deeply entrench the lesson, (laughs) right? Oh, you want that, huh? Didn't I tell you? Always feels good when you can say that to somebody. (laughs) It's a minor application point. Verse 19. Then the men of the city said to Elisha, here's a second miracle. Behold, now the situation of the city is pleasant. Everything looks good as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. So he said, bring me a new jar, put salt in it. So they brought it to him. And he went out to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, thus says the Lord, I have purified these waters. They shall not be from there." There shall not be from their death or unfruitfulness any longer. Well, Reminds you of the miracle at Meribah, with, or at Mara, I should say, with the bitter waters made sweet under Moses. And so the waters have been purified to this day according to the word of Elisha, which he spoke. Miracle one, parting of the Jordan. Miracle two, purifying of the water. In our lives, what has God done? He's taken the bitter and made it sweet. He's given us living water to drink. Today, if you go to Israel and you visit Jericho, which you can, uh, tour guides will point out Elisha's fountain. And you can take a drink of the purified waters today. And so this happened. The waters were purified according to the word of Elisha, the power of God moving through him in miracle. And now a final miracle one that perplexes many and one that has been a favorite one to point out by biblical skeptics and critics of the God of the Bible. Here's the story. When he went up, and this is the last part of the chapter, then he went up from there to Bethel back to that house of God where there's the deep history and idolatry now. And as he was going up, by the way, young lads... The New King James says youths. The ESV says small boys. The New Living says a group of boys. And the NIV says youth. Uh, 
came out from the city and mocked him, mocked Elisha and said to him, go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And all the bald men in the congregation said, that's right. That's what they've done to me. This story has been called Baldy Locks and the Two Bears. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> but they begin to mock him. Now, we all know that Elijah was hairy and Elisha was bald. And this is hope for all of us. Amen? God doesn't choose people based on the outward appearance. He looks where? At the heart. So if you're balding, there's hope for you. If you're hairy, there's hope for you. If you're both, you have a double portion. <laughs> and so they, they begin to mock the prophet. Hey, Baldy, go up, go up. Now here's what they're basically saying. They knew that Elijah had gone up in the whirlwind, in the chariots of fire, if you will. And they said, you go up too. Who are these youth? This is important for you to write down a Hebrew word. It's called nahar, N-A-H-A-R. It's the Hebrew word for youth. And it means a youth from 12 to 30 years old. It's used of Joseph when he was 17, Isaac when he was 28, the men of Sodom who tried to force their way into Lot's home and sexually abuse the angels, used of them. And it's used of the young men that counseled Rehoboam in 1 Kings 12, chapter 12, verse 8. No doubt this was a group of young adult hoodlums. Many scholars believe that these youth, young adults, represent a school of false prophets serving Baal at Bethel, serving the golden calf, the false god, small g. And so they come out, and they know Elisha has taken the mantle, and they're like, hey, Baldy, you get out of here. We don't want your ministry here. We don't want your prophetic powers here. We don't want your voice here. You go up to heaven. Go with your buddy. Go with your mentor. Get out of here. And they began to mock him. And a third miracle will occur because he looked behind him and saw them, and he cursed them in the name of the Lord. They were cursing him, so he cursed them. Then two female bears came out of the woods and tore up 42 lads of their number. Basically, they got mauled by some female bears. Now, here's what we know. We know that they were probably young adults. They probably served the cult. They're mocking God's representative. And here's the thing we need to know. God will not be mocked, Galatians 6, 7. Whatever a man sows, he will also reap. The newly instituted, carrying the mantle of Elijah, representing God, they confront him and they think nothing of it. And he, they mock him. They mock the God he represents. And so he curses them and these two bears come out and maul them. There are scholars that believe that they die. If you make a comparison to chapter one, Elijah called fire down from heaven on two platoons and we counted 102 dead and only because the third captain came in humility did he get spared. It's something like that, but here it's with bears. Leviticus uh, reads this way. This is 
Leviticus 26, 21, 22. God says, if you then, if then you act with hostility against me and are unwilling to obey me, I will increase the plague on you seven times according to your sins. And I will let loose among you the beasts of the field which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your cattle and reduce your number so that your roads lie deserted. Even Jesus called down judgment on certain villages that didn't believe even though tons of miracles had taken place. And so he doesn't kill them. He does curse them. The bears do the work. Warren Wearsby believes that the youth were mauled, but uh, they bore the scars, but they didn't die. Maybe some of them died. We don't know. It just says that they were, they were mauled. If they were mauled, they bore the scars, and you could imagine how ugly that is. Someone came up to me after first service and said, the majority of bear attacks do not end in death, but people are often terribly scarred. And this individual said, bears go for the back of your neck and your face, and often they will come at you with their claws, and that they're so fast that if they set their sights on you, you better have a weapon or you're pretty much done. And 42 of these mockers paid the price. And there are people who mock God as if it's nothing. And they think nothing will happen. And God is patient, right? He, how many times a day does God's name get taken in vain? Does Jesus' name get mocked? The name above all names, and yet God is so patient. Aren't you glad he was patient with you? I remember baptizing a young man, uh, and I had preached a message about some similar ideas. And before he got in the baptismal tank, he said, I used to be that guy. I mocked Christians. And now I'm becoming a Christian by God's grace. And we were like, praise God. We all come from, you know, past that maybe this was, this was you. And so he went from there to Mount Carmel, that famous site. And from there, he returned to Samaria. And you say, Pastor Michael, what are our takeaways from this message? <laughs> Let me give you a few. What's the message mean to me? Our journey with God starts at Gilgal, where he rolls away our past. We get to know him at Bethel, the beauty of his presence. We learn to walk by faith, Jericho. We die to self and live in resurrection power pictured in the Jordan River. We're called to take the mantle, the power of the gospel, the power of the spirit, our spiritual gifts, and we're to run in the lane that God has set out before us, and we're to run well and finish our race. And if you're not living for God, I, I don't know if you're a believer how you can do that, frankly. Our job is to institute our spiritual gifts and glorify our king. I hope you're doing that. I hope that you're ready to take the mantle and run. We are called to occupy until Jesus comes and to experience the power of his gospel in people's lives. I think of the Jordan River. I think of Jericho where he heals the bitter waters and one day he will reverse the curse fully as he redeems all that we see and he makes new. I think of the jeering of the, she, uh, of the prophet and the she-bears coming out and think of how patient God is with us, that he doesn't immediately strike us, even though there have been many times when we probably deserved it in our BC days, and yet he was patient because he came to seek and save the lost. And then finally, I think of Jesus. 
who took the curse at the cross and, if you will, was mauled, pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. He took the curse of the cross upon himself so that we wouldn't face the judgment of God. Aren't you glad? Jesus was mauled by the bearers, uh, the Romans and the, the Jewish leadership that hated him. And, and, he, and it happened without a cause and he did it for us. Would you bow your hearts? He did it because he loves us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for taking that curse, for taking the judgment. Forgive us for times that we have taken you lightly or even mocked you. Lord, we ask for your patience with the people of our country. And we ask for the forgiveness of our sins nationally, corporately, and individually. Thank you that you sent Jesus. You know, this, this scene of judgment would be realized as Nebuchadnezzar came to the southern kingdom and took them into captivity and the, the, the northern kingdom as well. And Medo-Persia is pictured as a bear who took over for Babylon. And Lord, we know that there's probably some imagery there as well. But I think the biggest thing we want to muse on at the end of this message is the beauty and power of the gospel. The good news that Jesus Christ took the curse for us. And now because that's happened, we can run. We can take the mantle that he has bestowed upon us. We can be the church, carry forth the gospel, proclaim the good news of hope in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. With your head and heart bowed, if you don't know Jesus, this would be a good time to run to him, to realize that he saves us from God's wrath, to repent of your sin and trust in Jesus. God so loved you, he sent his best. The greater Elisha, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the God of the Bible, the second person of the Holy Trinity died on that cross for you. Trust in him today. You don't have to have a perfect prayer, but you need to just tell him you believe in who he is and you're repenting of sin and trusting in what he did at the cross and through the resurrection. Maybe you're a prodigal. Maybe you've been wandering and you want to come back home and kind of reconnect and reinstitute those gifts that God has given you. That's a wonderful thing. Take the mantle. And for all of us who are walking with the Lord and can see the beauty of the geography and all that's here, I pray that the Lord would encourage your heart if you're feeling weak or faint-hearted, that you'd know that he's rolled your sins away, that he loves you, that he's with you, that he can make the bitter waters sweet again and he'll finish what he started in your life. Thank you, Father. We love you and we ask all of these things in Jesus' holy name. All God's people said.